You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy, who is Emerita Professor at UC Davis and also the current proprietor of Citrona Farms, the author of many wonderful books, including The Woman That Never Evolved, Mother Nature, and this one, of course, is the one that we'll discuss mostly, Mothers and Others. And I have to say, Sarah, when I was reading this, I actually have in the margins in about a half a dozen places, I just have the word wow, because there were (laughs) so many just incredible observations and insights and studies that were done. You're referencing these studies that just really blew my mind because they illustrated things that I wasn't aware of, even though I've been reading in this literature for many years. So welcome. Thank you for joining us. Glad to join you. By the way, about the walnuts, of course, it's my husband, Dan, who does most of the growing of the walnuts. I do the habitat restoration part. He's a retired doctor, and he says he does more good for human health growing walnuts than he ever did as a doctor, and he wasn't a bad doctor. That sounds like a topic for another show. It should be, yeah, for sure. And nuts, by the way, have a lot to do with human evolution and why we're so dependent on omega-3s. So yes, another show. That's right. Well, I think we might get a chance to talk about that, particularly the role of of grandmothers and why maybe the existence of grandmothers in, in humanity is due in part to our diet. Right. Food overall, yes. Yeah. I interviewed Richard Wrangham, who, of course, has some theories about this, about cooking You have a great discussion about tubers and nuts and their role in evolution. And what I didn't realize is that humans do have this unique enzyme that helps us to process tubers and that it's not uniformly distributed throughout the human population. Starch digesting enzyme, yes. So let's let's start with your grand idea. The central idea behind mothers and others is really a, a profound one. And it's one that it's surprising that it had not been articulated prior to this book. All of us are interested in what makes humans special and different from the other great apes. And we focus on our use of language and we focus on our theory of mind. And I think that probably the dominant hypothesis for this had to do with what we might think of as Machiavellian behavior and selection in favor of this behavior, which facilitated both kind of in-group status achievement and then success in outgroup warfare. And this is, of course, a story about male selection. And then those other consequences for the rest of us were sort of secondary byproducts. You offer a very, very different hypothesis, which I I think you articulated very well. Could you, in a nutshell, articulate that for us? I can't do it in a nutshell. I don't do (laughs) elevator pictures, but I can sure tell you. First of all, the hypothesis that an ape with the life history attributes of Homo sapiens, these very long periods of child development and big, costly brains, costly babies. This particular ape in the line leading to the genus Homo could not have evolved unless mothers had had a lot of help. And that really was a conclusion I came to writing a book about maternal love and ambivalence, Mother Nature. So by the time I finished Mother Nature, which was published in 1999, I realized, oh my goodness, Our ancestors must have been cooperative breeders, where mothers had help caring for and provisioning their offspring from others. And the old hypothesis was, oh yeah, it was man the hunter who was father the provisioner. 
But it turns out when you actually look at the evidence for people still living by hunting and gathering in Africa today, and you go back to the paleontological evidence, a man on his own could not possibly have brought in enough calories. And the data we have, the ethnographic data from Richard Lee for the Kung and for James O'Connell, Kristen Hawks, Burton Jones, Frank Marlowe, that crew, Brian Wood, working with the Hatsa, is that only about 40% of the calories that come in annually are from meat and honey brought in by men. 60% of the calories come from plant foods gathered by women, but a disproportionate number of those calories is coming from older women who aren't actually mothers at the moment. They're grandmothers and great aunts and other kin. So that it's pretty clear that alloparents, that is group members other than parents, in addition to parents, are helping to care for and raise offspring. That's the definition that the ornithologists came up with years ago for cooperative breeding. It really comes from birds. And of course, birds are one of those species with a lot of biparental care. There's no lactation. So males are just as capable of feeding as females are, and they're doing a lot of the feeding. So about 9% of 10,000 species of birds have cooperative breeding. It's evolved many times. And of course, there are lots of social insects with cooperative breeding and more. They go all the way to eusocial. And when you get to mammals, though, because of lactation, lactation is huge. Because of lactation, it's almost always mothers, and often mothers by themselves. And only 3% of mammals breed cooperatively. And it's a little bit more in the carnivores. I think it's more like 16%. And then it goes way up in the primates, maybe 20-something percent in primates. But that's mostly because of this subfamily of distantly, distantly related New World monkeys, marmosets, and tamarins, where there's a whole lot of cooperative breeding. So it ups us. But that said, across primates, which of course tend to be highly social, there is a lot of allomaternal care with infants. It's just there's not a whole lot of allomaternal care plus provisioning, which is what you need. And a lot of the people who study mammals that they call cooperative breeders, there actually isn't a whole lot of food sharing. And food sharing in humans over the course of our evolution has been huge. So I'm committed to the idea that over the course of the Pleistocene and maybe even starting earlier back in the Pliocene, our ancestors were beginning to have cooperative breeding. That is, mothers were relying on Allah mothers, male and female Allah mothers. You have to ra- it's hard to wrap your brain around the idea there could be a male Allah mother, but of course there can't. All an Allah mother means, it's from the Greek Allah other than. So someone other than the mother who's helping. And of course it can be a male as well as a female, as it so often is in birds. So the thing is, and this is where my contribution, I think, comes in, is once you have cooperative breeding, there are implications. There are implications for mothers. There's implications for fathers and men in general, for allo mothers. There are implications for grandmothers, and there are big implications for the infants who have to manipulate this system and survive in it. And so mothers, for example, this is really something that came to me when I was researching Mother Nature, which was a very personal book. I started researching it back in 1977 when I gave birth to my first baby. And I loved her very much, but it didn't take me long after we brought her home from the hospital to realize that I had a certain amount of ambivalence 
about being left at home all day with this child who I wanted to respond to. I certainly believed in that. Of course, as a primatologist, I'd closely read Bowlby and I knew all about attachment theory. And I was wondering, well, wait a minute, why on earth, if I evolved, wouldn't I be perfectly content to turn my life over to this little gene vehicle? (laughs) But I wasn't. I felt ambivalent about it. I was ambitious. I was working. I was a postdoc. And I wondered where was this coming from? And of course, over time, the answer dawned on me. It's because I didn't evolve to raise that baby by myself. Hominin, that's the bipedal apes on the line leading to Homo sapiens. Hominins have always been working mothers. They've always had to do other things in addition to care for their babies. Plus, their babies were starting over the course of the Pleistocene to come faster and faster because Pleistocene hominins had a really big problem, which is they weren't breeding enough fast enough to survive the conditions, these horrendous climatic conditions. The Pleistocene is a real lesson for humans today, which we only barely squeaked through. It's just a miracle, and it's only through cooperative breeding that they managed. But all the other bipedal apes, and remember, there were several dozen species of them, Artipithecus and all these Australopithecines, and there are lots of different bipedal apes out there. They all went extinct. It was just our line squeaked through. And I think the fact that we were beginning to buffer youngsters from starvation during this long, long period when they were still dependent, but their mother was going to have to have another offspring because most hunter-gatherers, the average birth interval is about two and a half years, which is much shorter than in chimps, maybe four years, much, much shorter than orangutans. Those mothers have eight, nine-year birth intervals. That was a road to extinction for bipedal apes in the Pleistocene, but we didn't take that road. We started to share food more and also share food in ways that helped to provision these infants. So the big effect on mothers I think this had is they had to be exquisitely sensitive to how much social support they were going to have before they even continued the enterprise of rearing a baby. And it's a very tricky subject to talk about. My entree into science was actually through the study of infanticide. It's fairly common in traditional societies, and it's just part of who we are. A lot of babies that are conceived, of course, never make it to birth, the majority. Mother Nature is probably the biggest abortionist in the world. So if God created us, we see where that leads us. Well, what's interesting is I think for people studying evolutionary biology who are interested in humans, most of their attention is to our nearest neighbors. They'll focus on chimps. Yeah, I call that the troglodytean bias. Yeah, and so even though they're probably closest to us in terms of theory of mind, but it's these more remote primate ancestors, the calamachids. Calamachids, yeah, yeah. Our parental style is closer to them. They don't pay attention to what you're looking at. Chimps have a rudimentary theory of mind, all right, and they're very good at using it in competition to outcompete someone else for food or for deceiving a rival. So, for example, wonderful anecdotes in the literature about a subordinate male who's trying to entice a female and the dominant male walks by and he covers his erection with his hands. Okay, I mean, that's deception. Or they give a food call when they want everyone to scatter and there's no food where they're calling them to be. They're perfectly capable of that. And I think one of the most telling studies for me, it was just very foundational for my thinking, was the study years ago that 
Mike Tomasello's group at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology at Leipzig did. Esther Herman was the first author of this article in Science, and they had come up with a battery of tests to look at the cognitive and social capacities that you didn't need to be able to use language to take the test. So they had this special battery of tests, and they had a remarkably large sample. They had 105 chimpanzees, about 101 two-and-a-half-year-old humans, and they had about 30 or so orangutans. And what they found is that in terms of cognitive capacities, that is assessing many versus few or assessing causality, what happens when you push something with a stick, it falls over. Chimpanzees and two-and-a-half-year-old humans are pretty much on the same wavelength, remarkably similar. But the differences showed up when they looked at socio-cognitive capacities, like learning to follow, to imitate a demonstrator. Other apes can imitate, but they're just not as good at it as two-and-a-half-year-old children are. And they have a rudimentary theory of mind. They are aware that someone else knows something different from what they know. They have that figured out, but they're just not as interested in what someone else is thinking and feeling. Those are where the differences really start to show up. These guys are experimental psychologists, and so they really want these clean experiments where they can measure and compare and control their studies. The psychiatrists are less interested in that, and in a way, they were more useful to me. And they talk a lot about intersubjectivity, and that's being really interested in what someone else thinks and feels and what they think about you. And that gets to be just critical in humans. And that's where this cooperative breeding hypothesis and its effects on youngsters really gets interesting. Because let's say that you are a newborn ape born to a mother who her commitment to you is a little more contingent than that of, say, a chimpanzee or a gorilla mother. It is true that sometimes a inexperienced or very young chimpanzee mother who doesn't quite know what to do is not a very good mother. But once a female chimpanzee is experienced, she is a totally dedicated, single-minded mother, the kind of thing Jane Goodall just lionized in her early work about old flow. She's going to hold that baby skin to skin in close contact, not let go of it for a moment for the first six months. 24-7, she's in contact with that baby. And frankly, if I were a chimpanzee mother, I wouldn't let my baby go either because either other females in the group to whom she's not related or other males, they wouldn't mind eating her baby. It's a nice source of lipids. And infanticide is, of course, a major source of mortality across the great apes, but also in many, many species of primates, 51 species to be exact now. It was controversial back when I first talked about sexually selected infanticide in primates. I don't think it's so controversial anymore, except in some little pockets of the social sciences. A silo, Greg, I don't pay attention to anymore. But these babies have to look good. They have to appeal to their mother. I think there are a number of reasons why infant humans are so much fatter at birth than an infant chimpanzee or gorilla. And it's a strange thing because right before that baby's going through the birth canal, it's a narrow birth canal in humans, tight squeeze, they're putting on weight. They're putting on fat in their shoulders and places you wouldn't expect them to. What's that fat about? I think partly it's thermoregulation. That's been suggested. It's also fat to fuel the lipids you need to fuel that brain development. 
But I think it's also over time as hominins associated looking good at birth with being full term and a good bet mm-hmm. for survival. I think it was an advertisement to their mother. I'm a keeper and a very not full term baby would not necessarily be kept. And with good reason, because it was a poor prognosis for survival. There may even have been an association with long-term bad effects. I don't know. But it was a hard life. And this is such a touchy subject. It's a difficult subject to talk about. But I'm afraid it's probably true. Maternal ambivalence was real. And so babies had to look good at birth. If their mother's commitment seemed to be kind of lagging, they needed to rev it up. But then about the time that a mother is starting to deliver solid foods, maybe beginning around six months, pre-masticated food, kiss-fed food, say saliva that is just made a little more attractive by very sweet baobab potter or honey. Mothers were giving this, but so were others. And so around the age of six months, babies are really needing to appeal to other group members. And this is, of course, when babbling starts. And of course, the old idea was that babbling was like training wheels on a bicycle to Mm -hmm. get language going. But that's problematic. You have to be very teleological to think that way. You have to say, wait a minute, even before language, spoken language and sophisticated language is useful, we're getting training wheels for it. Mother Nature couldn't have known bicycles were going to be good. So no, I think that it was beneficial right there in the here and now to make sure that a baby was going to have the reward of allomaternal attention, including maybe a treat to eat. So babbling gets going, but babies have to do something else. We know about Kinchin schema, which is why we find babies so just magnetically attractive, why that film by Thomas Balmay was a blockbuster. It's a wonderful film. It delights you. But see it twice and then look at the audience behind you, all these people going gaga over somebody else's baby they've never even seen before. Lots of animals have this kinchin schema. Conrad Lorenz noticed it years ago and wrote about it and came up with the term kinchin schema. It's this magnetism of babies. So we're attracted to babies, but babies also have to amp it up because even though they're not in direct competition with other babies, they are in competition to attract that care. And they need to monitor those around them. They need to monitor their attentions. They need to incorporate their preferences. They need to find out what someone else is going to like. They need to start to pay attention to what someone else thinks of them and feels towards them. And they need to care about their presentation of self, what Irving Goffman used to call the presentation of self. And so Judith Burkhart and I have recently written a paper for the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, which we regard as kind of a a how-to manual for Pleistocene babies. And it's kind of what you have to do to appeal to others. And in the course of doing that, they are starting to express potentials, which other apes had, but weren't normally expressed. Now think about that over evolutionary time. Mother Nature, which of course is my metaphor for Darwinian natural selection, really doesn't care about genes. Mother Nature can only act on traits that are expressed in the phenotype. So you have these normally not expressed traits that an ape has the potential for starting to be expressed in a novel, novel phenotype that's being reared under novel developmental circumstances. So you have 
this novel phenotype expressed to natural selection. Generation after generation, those little apes, they're just a little bit better at appealing to others, at intersubjective engagement, are going to be the best cared for and the best fed, which means that over time, you're going to end up with an emotionally and socially and cognitively very different kind of ape. And I don't really try to explain the main human feature film, which is, of course, sophisticated language, these extraordinary abilities to cooperate with others, all that stuff. I see that as coming later. I'm dealing with the prequel to the main human feature film, the kind of bow plan and the networks, the neural networks that have to be set up before language and other things are possible. And I agree with psychiatrists like Peter Hobson, who writes that, wait a minute, before language can evolve, there has to be something else. There has to be this intersubjective engagement. You have to be interested in communicating more. I mean, remember, other primates, lots of animals, actually have language. They can communicate beautifully. Vervet monkeys can say one cry for predator in the air, another cry for snake on the ground. Marmosets, which don't have theory of mind to speak of, but marmosets, when a male an owl mother or the father is finding some juicy little morsel, a nice little tree frog for the babies about the time they're weaning to come eat, they have a call. Oh, I found something good to eat. I've caught it for you. Come and get it. And then as the development of the baby marmosets progresses, or in this case, it was baby tamarins progresses. This is Lisa Rappaport's wonderful work on teaching in marmosets and tamarins. But as the development progresses and the baby is mature enough to maybe do some hunting on its own, the call shifts. The male alum mother gives a call, found something good, come over here and look. Mm -hmm. There's all this declarative communication going on, but it's not actually on a par with human language because we're not really saying, here's what I'm thinking about, here's what I'm feeling, here's what I know. That's a little bit different. And if you think of grammar and all the stuff, Chomsky and everybody on the evolution of grammar, what grammar is, is actually a tool. I think Tom Givon, the linguist, this is really his idea, that grammar is really a tool for helping someone else understand what you're saying. And so much about humans is about helping others understand what we're thinking and feeling. For example, a Japanese scientist years ago pointed out that most other apes, and you can tell this just by visit to the zoo, have dark sclera. You can't see what they're looking at because the pupil of their eye and the sclera is pretty much the same color. Only if they roll their eyes way over can you see any white sclera. Humans have white sclera, and it's to help others know exactly what you're looking at. Other apes don't follow a point. Humans do, except for apes that have reared in captivity dependent on human allo mothers, allo mothers of another species, but they're a caretaker all the same, they do learn to follow points. So that it's a developmental thing, but it can become inscribed in inherited traits like the white sclera. The thing that makes us human is this emotional maturity or this emotional modernity. And you say that the emotional modernity preceded language. It doesn't make us human. It laid the groundwork. Right. It was the pre-adaptation that's essential. And so the counterfactual would be if this inner subjectivity provides such an enormous advantage, allows us to cooperate, it allows us to work in groups and so forth, 
And the other great apes have the basic machinery that would allow it to evolve. It never happened with them. And your argument is that's because they don't have the alloparenting in place and it's alloparenting that enables it? Or did alloparenting kind of co-evolve with this? Alloparenting co-evolved with so much. It evolved with food sharing. But I want to go back to the point you just made because it's such a good one, which is, wait a minute, all the other apes had the raw material for this. Why didn't they evolve intersubjectivity as well? I mean, language would be enormously useful for chimpanzees. And the main theory there, you mentioned Machiavellian intelligence, but the other main theory there is that these cooperative capacities evolved in humans because we were fighting with our neighbors and we wanted to wipe them out. And it helped us to, you know, and they talk about, oh, if nature is red and tooth and claw, that's because humans were and war is because that's basic to human nature. And we've always done it because after all, pantroglodytes, the common chimpanzee is always trying to kill its neighbors. And I think it's true. You could almost call them genocidal, which I think Richard does call them. And I think that's true and real. But then you have another question, which is, okay, if warfare is what leads you to be so cooperative and to develop language and all these traits, how come chimps didn't spend the last six million years developing it as well? Well, the reason is because they didn't have shared care. And that is a whole nother ballgame because then you're asking, why don't chimpanzees have shared care? Ask me and I'll tell you. (laughs) Yeah, that's the question. There's got to be something that's exogenous something environmental? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with female autonomy in chimpanzees. And a lot of the people who pursue this warfare hypothesis have a starting assumption, a very fixed starting assumption, that our ancestors were what's called male patrilocal. Mm -hmm. That is, sons remain in the same group with their brothers and fathers so that they can be their allies in fighting with other groups. Because the assumption, probably right, is that males have greater resource holding potential than females do, being a bit stronger, a bit more aggressive. Not only do we see it in a number of the other great apes, but we see it in post-Pleistocene society, right? I'm not arguing with the importance of warfare. I'm just saying, was it what helped shape us in the Pleistocene before the Neocene, before you get to the Neolithic Revolution, or even before the Neolithic Revolution, when populations start to build up? And Sons have to stay home to help their father defend fixed resources because you're making your own food. You're either herding and herders really have to watch out about wrestlers and stuff. So those guys really did need to defend their resources. Plus the populations were building up. But remember, our Pleistocene ancestors in Africa were widely dispersed. And like the Hadza today or the Kung in the past, when they encounter someone who is a problem for them, they just move. And they were constantly moving anyway because of their unpredictable resource bases. Their water holes would dry up or game would move or something. But let's go back to your other question, which I love, which is, well, why didn't chimps become cooperative breeders? I think I mentioned that if I was a chimpanzee mother, I wouldn't let anybody touch my baby either. I think you said that we're both hypersensitive, but they're hyper-possessive and we're not. They're very hyper-possessive and they need to be. Let me just go back to that starting hypothesis of all the warmongers, which is that our ancestors were obligately patrilocal. And we were that way because our great ape ancestors all have patrilocal or male philopatric breeding systems. In fact, those breeding systems are a bit more flexible than that. So for example, a female chimpanzee whose mother is very dominant, like Flo's daughter, Jane Goodall's famous old Flo, her daughter, Fifi, 
a very dominant mother with a rich territory, she actually will stay put and she will breed in her mother's home territory. She doesn't migrate out like she's supposed to, according to the, the dogma. So about half of Flo's children, about half of Fifi's daughters stayed back in their home range and half left. But most chimpanzees do. The females do leave their natal groups to breed and the males stay, which is very different from most circumpensine monkeys where the females stay in their natal groups. So all the monkeys with a lot of shared care, not necessarily shared provisioning, they're not full-fledged cooperative breeders, but the monkeys with shared care, almost in order for that to evolve, they have to be there with their close relatives. So for example, the monkeys I used to study, Langer monkeys, live in these matrilineally organized groups where mothers remain in the same home range as their mothers and grandmothers for all their lives. And they're about as closely related to the other females in their group as first or second cousins. They trust these other group members and they share their baby and they're absolutely confident if it's a female relative in their own group of getting their baby back safely. Meanwhile, the mother gets freedom to forage and she is relieved of a metabolic load and she can breed a little faster as a result. So it's a win-win. The young females are gaining very valuable experience learning to mother because most people think that mothering in other animals is instinctive. But in primates, there's a lot about maternal care that has to be learned. So, okay, the chimpanzee mother isn't going to be willing to share her baby, and it can't get started that way. And they weren't under the same pressures that bipedal apes living in different habitats in Pleistocene Africa were to come up with more exaggerated divisions of labor and food sharing. Other apes do have a division of labor. So for example, chimpanzees, females spend more time termiting and cracking nuts and males spend more time hunting. Males are the main hunters, not the only hunters, but the main hunters in chimpanzees. So you had a rudimentary division of labor, but it wasn't anything like what develops among African hunter-gatherers. So food sharing gets started. Food sharing is huge. And this takes us to Kristen Hawkes' arguments about the role of grandmothers. In the monkeys I used to study, grandmothers are tremendously important as they get older. Because, you know, other primates have menopause too. They have a decline in fertility with age. And it's just that the only things they can do are defend babies against infanticidal male, which is a sporadic occurrence, or help in intertroop conflicts as they defend their larders, their feeding territories. In hunter-gatherers, certainly the African hunter-gatherers, there's something grandmothers could do on a daily basis that was incredibly important, which was bring back food to keep everybody kind of energy solvent. And I think the revelation to Kristen came, it's published in her 1989 paper about hardworking Hadza grandmothers. And of course, they're not necessarily grandmothers because some of them are great aunts. They're mainly maternal grandmothers, right? They are. And that's why this whole question of female autonomy and where females were living is so very important. And as we're learning more about the demography of African hunter-gatherers, and actually foragers worldwide, a paper Kim Hill and his colleagues did not too long ago in science, showing that males and females were about as likely to have close relatives in the group, and there were also non-relatives in the group. They weren't these bands of brothers, the way the intergroup warfare models are built on this assumption of male patrilocality. Other apes are a little more flexible than they were assuming. African hunter-gatherers were way more flexible. And I like the term Frank Marlowe came up with a few years ago, which was that 
our hunter-gatherer ancestors in Africa were multi-local. And so that a little bipedal ape growing up, if they were anything like their later hunter-gatherers, would have lived with many different kinds of companions growing up. So the classic, the most typical tradition that you hear about for the Hadza or the Kung would be that a young man looking for a wife might come to live with a group where there's a young girl growing up who's about to be fertile, and he might live with them for a while, hunting on behalf of her parents for a couple of years, and then they are, you can call it married, and he might stay there till one or two children are born. So she has her matrilineal kin on hand to help her, and it's that first birth where you really need help. This is an inexperienced young female, and of course, the more our maternal provisioning is going on, the earlier she's going to breed too, which is another story. You could ask me about what's happening to young women today. I definitely want to ask about that. I mean, what I found interesting is that when you talk about alloparenting, to the extent that the father is involved, there's alloparenting, right? No, that's allo-maternal care by a yeah. male who is the father. It's not alloparental because that's someone who isn't the genetic parent. Right. I have to throw these words around, but you do have to pay attention to whether it's allo-maternal or allo-parental. And the reason I prefer allo-maternal is because as often as not, we don't actually know who the father was. Well, that's what I found interesting is that you said that the presence of a father is not as universal as most people think in many societies, but it makes a huge difference in a patrilocal environment and much less of a difference in, in a matrilocal environment. Absolutely, it does. Even in prairie voles, it makes a difference. And having two parents is better than one. And having three parents, if you've got an ally mother in there, is even better. I used this term once, which has really gotten me into trouble. But I grew up in Texas, so I grew up playing poker. And I wrote an article once called Grandmothers as an Ace in the Hole. And people thought I was arguing that grandmothers were the be-all and the end-all. Well, these are people mostly in Britain and New England who don't play poker, and they don't realize that in stud poker, if everybody has a bad hand, you don't have a pair, meaning a married couple, you don't have a full house because you don't have a mother and a father and three aloe mothers. If all you have is a grandmother and she's turned down, that's the card turned down, that's an ace in the hole. That's going to be a winning hand if everybody else has bad hands. So if you have a bad hand, having an ace down or a grandmother, is an ace in the hole, but it's not the be-all and the end-all. But anyway, I got myself in a lot of trouble by talking about an ace in the hole. And if only people played more five-card stud piker, they wouldn't know. <laughs> I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about attachment theory. I think when Bowlby yes. did his studies that everyone knows about, it was a positive development compared to the... Of all the evolutionists, he's done more for human well-being than anybody else alive. But even then, the insights or the inferences were still shaped to some degree by some preconceptions about what ideal family yeah. should look like and ideal maternal love yeah. should look like. How have we developed a bit more sophisticated, nuanced understanding of what attachment means? We have to go back to what was actually influencing Bowlby at the time. And his templates, he had a brilliant insight that infants need to be warmly attached, that brilliant, right, gift to humanity. And he had another insight, which was our primate heritage was very important, evolutionarily speaking. But he had the wrong templates. He looked to gorillas and chimpanzees and baboons and macaques as his templates for maternal care among our Pleistocene hominin ancestors. 
And he said he chose them because they were terrestrial, and he knew that our ancestors were apes that were becoming more terrestrial. The problem was, even as early as he started publishing his great trilogy on attachment, 1966, we already had a little bit of information about shared care. And the Langer monkeys that I used to study are actually spending an awful lot of time on the ground. They're quite terrestrial. They're arbo-terrestrial. And yet, they had shared care, and that mothers weren't carrying the babies all the time. If he had looked at Titi monkeys, where the fathers are carrying the baby all the time, except when the mother's nursing it or at night, or if he'd looked at Langer monkeys or Pattis monkeys, he would have had a very different view of whether you had this monotropic view of mother love and mother attachment. And over the course of his life, he did loosen up a bit. I think Mary Ainsworth and her work in Africa looking at people with more extended families changed him. But if you scratched Bowlby hard, he would always go back to this mother is important. He was vehemently against mothers working outside the home. And of course, in developmental psychology, attachment theory has spun off in a cycle of its own. And so you get this attachment parenting, this idea that a mother has to be breastfeeding and be single-handedly taking care of her baby for five, six years. Remember that cover of Time magazine with the mother with a five-year-old still nursing and stuff? This is hard on mothers, and it's not going to be good for the children. The work on children who've had extensive maternal experience shows that they're much better able at integrating multiple perspectives. It's kind of like the cognitive potentials of children who speak several languages. It's just very valuable to be able to take into account what other people are thinking as well. And you include older siblings as potential allo parents as well, right? I do. And there's this wonderful study of a theory of mind. Theory of mind is contagious. You catch it from your older siblings. But then they did further work And they found out that, oh, it doesn't actually have to be a sibling. It can be any kind of older mentor, older child, older allo mothers that you're in relationship with. Yes, having allo mothers in addition to your mother is critically important for the development of theory of mind. And with the nuclear family and, of course, this pandemic where children were locked up, the pandemic has probably been a gift for infants in the sense that It was enforcing paternal leave on a lot of men who might not otherwise have taken Mm -hmm. paternal leave with their newborns. This is something I'm writing about now. But I'm not sure that it was doing those infants a long-term favor if it meant they were only going to be exposed to their fathers and not their grandparents or others their age. And even though I think an extended family is often in many ways going to be advantageous over most daycare in the United States, good daycare is really a gift to mothers and children growing up and to fathers. But for so long, our debate has been over, well, are we going to have mother care or daycare? When in fact, the debate should have been, how do we make daycare better? And I'm very pleased with this new focus in the Biden administration on better daycare and at least earlier preschool. The evidence on preschool And its effects on longer-term socialization and education is pretty clear-cut. It should be something that we all are in favor of. And it certainly is part of producing an effective workforce. Well, it does seem like the nuclear family is sort of an aberration in our development. 
I'm afraid for the nuclear family has a lot to answer for. And particularly as they get smaller and smaller and we have only yes, children. Exactly. And I've been reading that mothers now spend more time with their children than they ever have. I'm afraid so. <laughs> Even during the hunter-gatherer days, they're probably spending more time with their children. Do you remember that terrible line from the Duchess of Windsor, a woman can never be too rich or too thin? That's not my mantra. My mantra is a mother can never have too many aloe mothers. You just mm -hmm. can't have too many. It seems that the organization of, of our society, our economy, sort of makes it very difficult for people to have aloe mothers. My goddaughter, her mother was widowed when she was only four years old, and she lived in a small community. And so she was able to park her daughter at, she had a couple dozen friends, one of whom was me, and yeah. she wound up parking her all over the place. And it was just such a wonderful thing. And yet I realized how incredibly rare it was that people had the ability to do that because they didn't live in communities where that was possible. Well, the same daughter-in-law that took your statistics course at Berkeley and said you were a really good teacher, but a little quirky, that same daughter-in-law actually developed an app called Allo, mm. in which people could locate trustworthy Allo mothers to kind of solve that problem electronically. But to go back to the whole nuclear family issue, I agree with everything you said, but there's an additional problem, which is architecture and the way our housing is designed. And everybody wants to be in these independent houses. And I noticed years ago when I was at UC Davis that the graduate students who were living in student housing but had young children were actually better off than the ones who were in their independent apartments. And when you look in France, for example, if I were a graduate student now writing my PhD thesis and I didn't have a lot of help, I'd go to France and those école maternales where you can put your child in daycare. They're excellent daycares, most of them. The women who run them have a whole lot of training. Oh, they have such wonderful food and they have a lot of cultural augmentation and they have a good facility. They kind of fence them in in these safe areas and then let the kids have a lot of freedom. It's a wonderful system. And it's interesting that France hasn't had the same dearth of births that other places in Europe, Japan, and of course in this country we're starting to have. I was just interviewing someone who was describing how in the city of Glasgow, they destroyed the tenement housing that was popular and created these more inhuman housing projects. What a nightmare. The life expectancy in Glasgow is, is in the mid-50s, and the social capital is, they used to just leave the kids lying around and playing. You describe how children, when they come out of the womb, they share food, they're altruistic in ways that... Well, not quite when they come out of the womb. Shortly thereafter. Human babies are extraordinarily altricial, which means helpless, except for there's some funny things about them. Their eyes are open, which mm -hmm. the definition of altricial is you're born with no fur and your eyes closed. So they're kind of a mosaic. They're very helpless, and they're much more helpless in a locomotor sense for longer than chimpanzees are. Very soon, little chimps could run, literally run circles around a human baby. It's taking them a long time to learn to crawl or walk. But in terms of their social sensibilities, they're amazingly precocial. And they're looking around. Little chimps are looking around right after birth, too, and making eye contact and imitating. But after a while, they lose interest. Little humans, by nine months of age, are much more interested. I mean, Greg, they'll hand out something to you, and they'll sort of say, what do you think of this? So they don't use words, but they want to know your reaction to things. And they are, by 18 months, Alison Gopnik, there at Berkeley with you, showed years ago that by 18 months, sometimes a bit sooner, a human infant will offer food to someone else, even if it's a food they hate, like broccoli, because they prefer crackers, if they know 
if they've had reason to learn that the other person likes broccoli better. Well, that's amazing. And a chimp would never do that. We raise our children to fear strangers and to view the world often as a threatening place. And I think you talked about how a feeling of security and a, and a feeling of attachment to others is something that helps them to be psychologically healthier yes. later in life. Do you fear that perhaps we're overdoing it in terms of raising our children to be a little too suspicious of, of others and strangers in the outside world? Of course I do, except that I guess it would depend on your neighborhood. <laughs> but yes, I mean, you raised the point about being afraid of your environment. If you grow up with Grimm's fairy tales and these grim German fairy tales and the original Hansel and Gretel story, that wasn't the stepmother leaving the kids in the woods. That was the mother. But they thought that was too awful, so they, they bottlerized it. So yes, if you grew up in Germany, you were taught to think of the woods as a scary place. But if you grew up as an Aka forager in Central Africa, you would see the forest as your friend, as an extension of your family, as a good place and feel safe in it. And I remember reading a story in a book by Elizabeth Marshall Thomas once. And of course, the Marshall family back in the 50s did one of the first studies living among the Kung. And it was about a, a young Kung girl or a Jinwasi in the Kalahari Desert. And some idiot zoologist had left an animal trap out, not properly protected. And this young girl had stepped in it. And she was caught in this hideously painful animal trap for like 14 hours before people found her and released her. And you'd think that she would be post-traumatic stress, that she would almost die from the stress of it, being out in the sun and, and worried and stuff. But in fact, Marshall Thomas writes about how calm she was and just convinced, yeah, they're coming to get me. I think it is just very helpful. I think it's much more healthy to feel secure in your environment than to not feel secure. I, and that's just almost a truism of life. Right. And so when I was reading through the book the whole time, I kept thinking about what kinds of implications there might be for how we raise our children, how we live and so forth. And I found towards the end of the book, you mentioned that postpartum depression may well be an indication that there's not enough social support for the mother and that the mother's essentially going through that calculus, which is, do I have what it takes? Do I have the support that I need to make sure that this child's going to be healthy and thrive? Absolutely. I think that there's a lot of evidence that a mother attaches to her baby more readily and the attachment is more secure if she has, for example, her own mother living in the house, assuming they get along, or has allomaternal support. Postpartum depression, though, is interesting because about 10% of women, at least, experience some kind of blues, but the serious, almost psychotic postpartum depression is rare. I think part of it is exactly what we were just talking about, a woman who feels like she doesn't have the support she needs. But there are other things going on because in mammals, you have what's called lactational aggression. And if you ever have like a female mouse just after she's given birth, she's boadicea in how aggressive she becomes in defending her babies. And I think women are much more protective and vigilant. But, you know, in our society, it's not socially acceptable for a woman to feel and behave aggressive towards others. We didn't like that. And it, it really hurts you. And if you're running for office and you come across as aggressive and you're a woman, dead in the water. 
So these women feel like others aren't approving of the way they feel, and they're feeling very vigilant and helpless. So I think lactational aggression may be part of what's going on. But yes, I think it's also this sensitivity to social support. And the best evidence we have consistent with that is this amazing finding that the people in Denver, Colorado, in the old studies are finding that these minimal interventions where they send a very supportive, trained woman to somebody's house shortly after she gives birth to talk to her like a friend and advisor, it's not that much time. And yet it has these long-term effects in terms of how long she breastfeeds and later on, how long that child stays in school. Amazing. And it makes these things they're doing in Britain with these early maternal interventions seem like a good idea. And then we also don't tend to have multi-generational households in the U.S. Well, they're increasing ever so slightly. And of course, the last recession increased children going to live with their families and their partners and then having children living in their parents' home. It's a gift of the recession. There are all kinds of unexpected gifts from not nice things. Certainly the norms haven't changed. No, that's right. No, the norms have not changed. We want our privacy. I'm not a fan of privacy, by the way. <laughs> well, there seems to be some signs that people who have open doors and households with continual visitors tend to be healthier, right, and live longer. Well, there's no child abuse virtually among hunter-gatherers because other people wouldn't tolerate it. I was surprised also you talked about hospitality. I've read so many stories about how in some cultures where even when a stranger shows up, there was a great story of an American soldier that wound up in an Afghan household and, and they wound up defending him against the Taliban just because he happened to show up on their doorstep. And this idea that people are generous towards strangers is something that is uniquely human. It's uniquely human, except it also is turning out to occur in bonobos, which are just as closely related to us as common chimpanzees. But I'm just suspecting, we don't know, of course, but I suspect that what you're talking about, this generosity towards strangers and this willingness to share food with strangers is really, really old. And Alison Brooks and Sally McBearty published a very famous paper back in 2000 on how, at that time, people thought that language really only got started 50,000 years ago when hominins got to Europe, and that's when their efflorescence of art, this creative explosion, the Chauvet cage, and all the wonderful cave art and stuff. Their paper showed that there was actually long-distance exchange of ochre and arrowheads and obsidian back as early as 150,000 years. Mm -hmm. That is before anatomically modern big-brained Homo sapiens was on the scene. So we had to have had some kind of relationships with not necessarily strangers, but people we don't see often. Yeah. There had to be these exchange relationships. And I suspect that food sharing was a big part of that. But of course, food doesn't fossilize the way obsidian ochre does. But if we go back in time, other apes share food, but it's very grudging. And it's usually somewhat reciprocal between allies in hunting. Some study sites, they have reciprocal sharing. Other sites, the observers say it never happens here. It's not a big part of their lives, but it was an enormous part of foragers where, first of all, you had to have sharing between women and men to keep men hunting because otherwise they'd come home empty-handed and be hungry and the children would starve. And I think that you had these people exposed to babies begging for food. And if you look across primates, Adrian Yegi and Carl von Scheich have done a lovely study, the only systematic study I know of, of the origins of food sharing in other primates. 
you don't find food sharing among adults, except in species where you already have adult to infant transfers. Yeah, I find it fascinating because it doesn't seem to follow from the kin selection models. Obviously, you would argue that certainly if your allo parents are related, it's certainly better for your outcome, but it doesn't have to be. Yes, but we have to be careful. I definitely think you need a very high degree of relatedness within the group for cooperative breeding to get started. That's critical. It takes on a life of its own, like culture. Culture takes on a life of its own and it spins out in funny directions. And so the thresholds for responding to supplicants gets lower. There's a lot more oxytocin floating around. There are dopamines floating around when we do something generous. Mm -hmm. This is kind of changing the rules of the game for things like sharing. Yeah, when you said that nursing is, it's like an opiate for the mother, and also, I guess, a little bit for the father or for others. I think when you said that if mothers are given a choice between nursing and access to cocaine, they'll choose nursing. Those are mother mice. Yes. Well, (laughs) of course, I don't think anybody ran that experiment. That would be a hard one to get past the IRB, right? IRBs are so funny. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. About the oxytocin going up in mothers who are nursing and maybe in fathers too. Do you know when my first grandchild was expected and I kept threatening my children, I kept saying, you've got to have a grandchild now before my sell-by date because grandmothers are a big asset up to about age 70. After 70, they're less and less of an asset (laughs) and I'm going on 75. So anyway, I warned them and they finally did it. And the summer before, we have a summer reunion at the farm, not during the pandemic, but other years, I enlisted Lee Gettler to do the testosterone samples and my wonderful friend Sue Carter to do the oxytocin samples. And I had my buddies all lined up. I took saliva samples from everyone to establish these baselines. And then after the grandbaby arrived, I had them come in and hold the baby and spend time with the baby. And I think that I wasn't really able to monitor compliance with all the protocols of my study that well, except in me and my husband, because I could really run that one the way I wanted. But anyway, in both Dan and me, in my case, within two hours of holding my grandchild for the first time. So I land at LaGuardia and I get a taxi to their house in Harlem, their brownstone where they're living. And on the way there, I take out this little polyethylene (laughs) tube and spit in it and screw the cap on. And when I get there, I put it in the freezer and then I hold my grandchild for two hours. And then I spit again and freeze that. And anyway, the whole protocol. And then my oxytocin levels just surged way up by 63% or something. And then when Dan came a couple of weeks later and he gets to the thing, even before I hug him, I pass him a tube. I say, spit here, dear, just spit. And I freeze that and he holds the baby for two hours the first day. And there wasn't that big a jump. The second day, It took him an extra two hours, took him a little longer, but he had, just by coincidence, exactly the same surge in oxytocin that I did. So we were aloe mothers. We weren't parents. I just hadn't undergone gestation. I may have been more responsive because I had been a mother and I had given birth and breastfed, but my husband hadn't. Anyway, I think the focus has to be now looking at what happens to aloe parents and aloe mothers as well as to mothers. And so all the early work, beautiful early work, Rosenblatt's lovely study, if you took blood from a lactating mother who'd just given birth and you put it into a virgin female rat, she'll start to be maternal. Gorgeous early work. But that was so matricentric. They mm-hmm. forgot that there were all these other characters on the stage. And of course, if you have animals in captivity and they're just put in a cage with a mother and her babies or a mother and a father, 
you don't even learn about this, but you do learn about it in natural settings. Now, there is a dark side to all of this, and you mentioned the skew and you social animals, right, the bees and so forth. And, right. and I think in hunter-gatherer society, there isn't a sterile class of caretakers no. like you have with bees, but we do in some more developed societies, right? We do, absolutely. And Mother Nature is all about, or there's whole sections of it, about how elite women with resources were getting slaves, servants, mm -hmm. very poor women who have to farm their own babies out, almost condemned to death, and come serve as wet nurses. Jane Austen's family, I think the same wet nurse nursed all their children in that family. And who knows what happened to her own children, but they weren't allowed to bring their own children. It was seen right. as unhealthy. So enlisting others to help you raise your child, it's not just that they're all beneficent and generous and maternal, but rather they, they may fear you or feel some kind of obligation towards you. Hunter-gatherers are special because they really had this ethic. People always describe them as fiercely egalitarian. They weren't totally egalitarian. I think a man could still beat up his wife sometime because he was stronger, but they were. Women had remarkable autonomy, and they had autonomy of movement. And one of the things I realized really early on in writing The Woman That Never Evolved was that female autonomy, her local clout, really influences her relationship with males and how much mm -hmm. males can push her around. And in humans, because females are producing the majority of the calories and they have to move around to get them and everybody has to move around and she has the option to move to be near kin. So this really changes a lot. And female autonomy is key. But early on, when I first was talking about humans as cooperative breeders, and it was still a little bit controversial, long before I published Mothers and Others, I realized I had a problem because I was talking about it in a lecture one day, and a very fine zoologist, Tim Carroll, who has studied at Cambridge with Cluttenbrock and all the cooperative breeding mafia there, said, oh, but Sarah, hunter-gatherers couldn't possibly be cooperative breeders because they don't have a sterile caste. For example, in meerkats, which so much of the beautiful work has been done, really only the alpha female breeds. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, a second female might breed. In marmosets, often only the alpha female breeds. But what's interesting is if you look across the natural world or across wild populations of marmosets, and you often do find there's more than one breeding female. So it's not written in stone, but the dominant female is imposing quite a bit. And she's kind of making the subordinate an offer she can't afford to refuse because she will kill the subordinate's offspring when it's born. She literally bites its head off and awful things happen. And this can happen even when the subordinate female giving birth is her own daughter. So this is the grandmother from hell. This is not the helpful grandmother. And so that's kind of what you were talking about. But I don't think you have that in hunter-gatherers. And I think it's because of the mutual dependence mm -hmm. people have on one another. It's a very different situation. And in birds, of course, there's all kinds of non-relatives helping. My favorite is the splendid fairy wren where years ago, Alexander Coburn in Australia attached little electronic monitors on these beautiful, beautiful little flashy birds, very hard to watch, they flit all the time, onto a splendid fairy ring and found out that the females were flying off before dawn, mm -hmm. mating with males outside her group, coming back. And then the males in her group, who were not the fathers, were helping to provision her babies. Why and how this has persisted, one hypothesis is maybe they were her brothers. We don't know. I don't know. Someone may know. So yeah, it can get a little odd. 
One other observation that I found interesting was you talk about how girls from a very young age are much more attentive to the intentions and the feelings of others towards them, other girls towards them, and that this is them essentially working on their social networks from a very early age to build out the support system that they'll need to collectively raise their children. The babies are working on their theory of mind in order to secure attention from their allo parents, especially the girls, will start to work on their theory of mind in order to build out their system of allo parents for the next generation. This is what I tell my godchildren, what I used to tell my students when they were trying to decide whether or not to give birth. And I say, yeah, that's fine, but get your ducks in a row first and line up the help you're going to need. Because these poor women who give birth and want to go back to work and all of a sudden realize, and then they're making really bad decisions when they're looking for daycare. And instead of really finding out who's going to help take care of that baby, it's really, oh God, when can I begin? And it's not a good position to be in. You need to have your ducks in a row. But this is also why young girls or teenagers who are ostracized by their fellows, by their classmates, this can be such a devastating thing and lead to such psychological problems. Whereas you might think, well, sticks and stones can break your bones, but don't worry about what the other kids think. I mean, this is a matter of survival. Greg, I really believe what you're just saying. I have to tell you that section of my book was pretty speculative. That's just what I think. I can't point to studies that show that. There are, of course, movies and books like Mean Girls, wonderful stuff about how ostracizing these things are. But I think it's girls competing for networks, for relationships. And the work coming out of the best studied primates in the world, which are the Amboseli baboon at Gene Altman site, where Susan Alberts and Joan Selk and others are working now, show that even leaving aside dominance, and this is a very hierarchical society, even leaving aside dominance, the females with the most friends, best network females, have the highest infant survival rates. What? Go figure. I think this is very important. This helps me to understand TikTok and Instagram much better. Oh, don't make me feel bad. I'm such a dinosaur. I don't use Instagram, TikTok. I won't touch Facebook. I think Facebook is probably harmful to human well-being, turning us all into narcissists. But you mentioned young girls. I think from a perspective, a Pleistocene perspective, what we're doing to young girls is really, really wrong on lots of fronts. But in particular, back in the Pleistocene, any girl who had enough fat on board to ovulate at a young age, by definition, had a whole lot of allomaternal support because these people were helping to provision her because she couldn't possibly get that many calories on her own. So after her baby was born, she was likely to have allomaternal support. Today, we've got these couch potatoes who are ovulating at very early ages, all fed up, and we're not providing them with the sex education and the birth control they need. And to me, this is like sending someone up into an airplane without pressurizing the cabin. It's just wrong. And I'm disgusted that some of the institutions I'm most involved with, they put women's career opportunities top of the radar, and they really want women to have equal pay and so forth, but they're not paying enough attention to what's going on, for example, in my home state of Texas with really interfering with reproductive choice, Planned Parenthood. This is a terrible, it's almost a crime against humanity, what we're doing. It's really interesting because the nuclear family and the patrilocal organization of society and the isolation from these networks, this was sort of a historical artifact. And now with women going back into the workforce, a lot of that, you don't really need any of that. But rather than returning to a, a system where we have these rich networks of allo parents, 
we're sort of retaining some elements of that organizational structure, which aren't necessarily the best ones. I think that's right. I think they're little slivers of our population, little tiny demographic slivers, where there's kind of a recognition of this and things are changing. I'd like to see it spread. And this is actually something I'm writing about now. There's a lot about it that I'm uncomfortable with. I don't want to be seen as glorifying the Pleistocene mm -hmm. because the Pleistocene was fabulous. Let's bring back parasites. Yeah. <laughs> Let's bring back malaria and smallpox. 50 to 80% child mortality too. Right. We'd like that. And part of our problem today, though it's perverse, perverse as hell to call it a problem, is that our children survive too well because parents evolve to respond to threats to the survival of our offspring. We did not evolve to respond to psychological distress mm -hmm. to a child that feels like it's not secure enough in its attachments. And when I was at the university, I remember having colleagues, young mothers, as you know, there's just tremendous pressure and you just don't have a life. And they're trying to raise this child and they're doing the best they can. And the child is really in distress, but can't show it. And I remember being at a faculty arrangement once and kind of wishing the child would just go to the wall and start beating its head against the wall to communicate to its parents, I'm not getting what I need, but they're not. Yeah. In my class, I remember one parent student of mine asked if, if she could bring her child to class. And I said, of course you can bring your child to class, right? We've got plenty of space in the back. No big deal. But I think that this was very rare. I never see kids in class. Well, you're very new. You're very modern in this respect. Years ago, through various mishaps, a birth was delayed. And I gave birth to my second daughter, Sasha, just one week before the first international conference on infanticide and animals and man that I was a co-organizer of was about to start in Cornell. We delayed the conference because they wouldn't have let me on the little plane to Ithaca if I'd been eight months pregnant. And my co-organizer was just really hard-nosed. And he said, well, Sarah, of course you can't bring a baby into the auditorium. Well, this is a brand new baby. At that point, Ed Wilson's assistant, wonderful woman, Kathy Horton, had a friend who had an eight-month-old baby, and she had lots and lots of milk, more milk than she needed. And we made an arrangement in exchange for wine. She would breastfeed Sasha during that week, during the day, and I would only breastfeed her at night. And I was taking a big chance because after, she might not have come back to the normal nursing. But anyway, it did work, and I took a nurse with me to the conference. But it was just so inhumane that I couldn't have that baby in the conference. But now you can. And I remember being at a, a Dalim conference that Sue Carter organized in Berlin and almost bursting into tears at one of the sessions. I was so emotional because it was the first time I'd ever been at a conference where they actually had a session on daycare for women who were working women. And I thought, yes, yes, please. <laughs> but it's changing and it's all changing faster than I would have thought possible. In my lifetime, it's not that everything's perfect. Everything was really changing. And then Donald Trump was elected and we kind of went backwards. But it really is the arch of time. It seems to be getting better. I recently listened on Audible to Walter Isaacson's wonderful biography of Jennifer Doudna, of course, who's a heroine for our time. And just the change between her experience, what happened to poor Marie Curie, and then, of course, Rosalind. Franklin, whose data was just stolen by mm -hmm. Watson and Crick and given her no credit for it. And then I had recently listened to Rita Colwell's very bitter biography about her life. She was the first woman director of NSF. And then remembering my own experience where things were getting better. 
it was really in middle age when I started to have women colleagues of my own status. And we actually formed support networks that were terribly, terribly important. And that's new, but Jennifer Doudna's generation is a whole new generation. It really is changing. But of course, as of course women went into medicine, the salaries for family practitioners went down. And there was this famous article about that time, gravy train leaves just as women arrive at station. So that's always a problem. Part of your story is the unique capabilities of women. And there are certain professions like teaching and running daycare centers and roles that were very much care-oriented that have been dominated by women. Is that going to stay? If the number of doctors and lawyers all become 50-50, then mathematically, won't the number of daycare managers have to also become 50-50? As I wrote Mothers and Others, there is a tremendous untapped potential for nurture in men. Eliciting it takes a particular context and how long the transformations last is not yet known. I only know of one study that kind of addresses that question. Anyway, it's something I'm writing about now, but the reason I write, Greg, is to find out what I think, because I really don't know. And this kind of takes us back to where you started from with your whole issue of silos. And it's a big problem. It's especially a big problem if you're a young researcher looking for funding and you want to do cross-disciplinary research. And there are a couple of NGOs and things now that are starting up to fund cross-disciplinary work across silos, but it's very competitive because it's not that common. But in my case, because I'm really just an independent scholar off on my own, it's kind of the limits on how many silos I can integrate are really my own. They have to do with getting older, memory lapses, not being able to read, and the fact that neuroscientists don't write in English. It's just all acronyms, and it takes me a whole day to read one paper, and then I forget it the next day. I mean, these are my problems. But if you're doing research, the silo problem is huge. Well, I have to say that this is a fantastically written book, and there's so many turns of phrases. Like, I think you said, the art of Babel preceded the gift of the gab, or some other ones, or the grandmother from hell. You've got some really fantastic phrases in here. So you're doing a great job of stitching all this together. What about the next book? When is the next book coming out? And what's it called? Pantheon had the right of first refusal on it. Peter Ginsburg at Curtis Brown sent the editor there my prospectus. And he looked at it and he said, ah, too many amphibians and turned it down. So I don't have a publisher. I don't know when it's coming out. (laughs) Okay. Well, I look forward to it. Actually, that goes to your point about silos, too many amphibians. Yeah. (laughs) Amphibians are huge if you're interested in paternal care. (laughs) Yeah. I think we can learn a lot from all the animals. And in this book, you don't just limit yourself to primates. You've got some great stories about birds feeding fish. There's just so much wonderful, the variety of parental approaches is just mind boggling. Do you know what's happening outside right now? We have a mother nanny goat who lost her young. She forgot them somewhere. And she is nursing her grandchildren. (laughs) You have an example in there of of a lion nursing some antelopes, which besides being very biblical, it was pretty amazing. The great evolutionary theorist, William Hamilton, used to cite Darwin, who said, if you ever find an animal behaving altruistically, to an animal it's not related to. My whole theory kind of goes up in smoke. No, Hamilton said that. But then he sent me a wonderful picture of a donkey nursing a lion. It happens. It does happen. But I think it has to do with, I think you can kind of misdirected paternal care, that the threshold for responding in a nurturing way 
falls so low that you start to respond to different stimuli. And that's why we all have pets. Well, you know, when you look into your dog's eyes, your oxytocin goes up, but so does your dog's. Yes. And so I look forward to tasting some of your walnuts. Well, I got a 70 address and you'll get them. Yeah. We harvest them in November. The best time to get walnuts is right before Christmas and New Year's. And then we continue to sell them. And then around June or July, Dan won't let me sell them because he says they're too old. But in fact, they do great as long as you keep them frozen. Citrona Farms, check them out. Thanks again, Sarah. Hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, it was fun to talk to you. Hope our paths cross. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.